So, thanks. Welcome for everyone coming here today. Um, I think we, uh, at least I wanted to have, take an opportunity and um, a little reflection. It's almost been a year since the first meeting we had in the uh, library back in December. I think it was December 13th or 14th, maybe. And uh, just take a, a little moment, look back assess, I guess, what we've been able to accomplish, what maybe we didn't accomplish, and uh, things we learned, things we'd like to uh, accomplish, maybe looking forward, and then what everyone's planning to do in January. So I think um, one of the main impetuses of forming this group was a way to have collective action as needed on a kind of ad hoc basis uh, for things um, that we thought were important. And so we kind of did that with measure two. And I think the legislative session coming up is going to be a huge opportunity to continue to do that and maybe do it in different and, and more interesting ways than we are able to do with measure two. Um, so I wanna, uh, I guess, before we get to that, um, give everyone else a chance to, to reflect on the last year, um, obviously. 2020 will go down in history for all the wrong reasons, maybe. Um, but maybe <laughs> maybe it's the start of something better, we, we don't know. Um, but with that, uh, who wants to try to take a look back for, uh, first and uh, let us know what, you know how they felt that this particular group has um, evolved and um, you know made good use of our time. It's been, I would assume, close to 50 hours of, of meetings um, with this particular group under this partic these particular auspices. Uh, so that's a pretty good chunk of time. I think it's a good time to take a look back and see you know how we evaluate ourselves. Who'd like to go first? This is Ellie. I'm willing to. All right, Ellie. Um, if that's cool. Yes. Um, so when, I must confess something. Um, when this stuff start, first started happening a year ago, um, it was a joke between me and my husband. We called it the cult um, because the email from Ryan, the initial email from Ryan was so utterly mysterious. And... Um, I showed it to him and we were both like, hmm. And I was like, yeah, I'll go to this. Um, and anyway, so it, so we've been nicknamed the cult for a long time in my household, just because of the mysterious um, first contact point from the beginning. Um, I think it's been really interesting to see the group come full circle because, well, I think, you know, Dustin can tell me if I'm wrong, but I kind of got the impression from the beginning that he was interested in finding, among other things, finding people who wanted to work to defeat what became Measure 2. And, you know, I think it was a crazy year and we tried to do some experimental things that were particular to the time in the year and what we were going through. But ultimately what got the most traction and was the most successful was something we were going to have to deal with no matter whether it was a pandemic year or not. And we had to, you know, work on Measure 2 um, defeating measure two, I suppose. And I thought it was interesting that that's really the thing that got so much substantive momentum and, um, and it was great. Anyways, I just think it's kind of interesting how weird the year has been and how some of the really original tenets and interests, um, really got their day in the sun. You know, um, I think that what we tackled was nonpartisan. Uh, we, it was a nonpartisan issue from the, in terms of the voters were diverse who we wanted to recruit to vote against measure two. And that was so compatible with the spirit from the beginning. And anyways, it was just kind of neat to see something so relevant emerge despite all the challenges thrown our way. 
Thank you, Ellie. Anyone else like to respond to Ellie or, or continue with the reflection? Well, I'd like to respond, I guess. Um, my, my feeling about getting involved with anything like this is that there's going to be some, some kind of change that I can be part of. And uh, I, I guess defeating measure two, yeah, that, that, that's great. But, you know, my, my hope was that we would be able to do more about the structure uh, of North Dakota politics and how completely lopsided it is. And one of the things that I was hoping we could accomplish, and again, when Ellen and uh, Dave were initially involved in some of these other things, I was really hopeful that we could move against, uh, you know, legislative, uh, the gerrymandering that is so, such a toxic thing in North Dakota, because it just basically shuts so many voices out of the system. And uh, I, I was really hoping that that would be something that could be accomplished. And then that just fell to pieces. And uh, overall, I, I, I guess it's just so disappointing that North Dakota, even though I, I, I love the prairie and I really enjoy so many things about it, it, it it's such a such a odd place to be right now. And especially with the COVID thing, it, it's just gotten me to a point where when and how can this structure be changed? Well, you know, there's four of us here now, one, two, three. Oh, there's six of us, I guess. But it's, uh, you know, I mean, there, there's got to be a better way. Like I look at what uh, Stacey Abrams did in Georgia and uh, how she was able to actually connect and, and make a, make an actual movement. But in North Dakota, it, it seems like our politics is so disjointed that, that there's really no progressive ability to make change in this state. And that's, you know, just really got me puzzled that there isn't a, a better way for us to make some movement. I mean, the, Measure two was definitely a, a total power grab and it was totally, it totally should have been, it should have never been in the first place. So you're, you're right that, but to me, that's such a small win when there's so many major problems that, that, that need to be addressed, I guess. So I guess that's my reflection on it. Norton, um, you know, have, having done this for, for 15 years, there are no big wins. I got to break it to you. It, it's all incremental. It's all taking small bites. I mean, there's an old phrase. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. And, and you get you to gotta segment it down into digestible parts. And, and the problem is that, you know, when you spend most of your time on defense, there's not a lot of bandwidth for offense and, and that's just the way it is. And, and, you know, from that aspect, you know, that, that's what I find myself in from the other side, exactly the same, which is, you know, fighting against both the squishy middle that doesn't want to do anything. The, uh, 
what, what we used to call rhino Republicans who were basically Democrats in disguise that were pushing things that we definitely, as conservatives, didn't believe in. And then dealing with the conservative arm of the party that has an agenda but really doesn't know how to do anything. <laughs> You know, and and dealing with those three dynamics, uh, from from my angle, is is probably as frustrating as as it is for you, uh, from your angle. Uh, that a makes a lot of sense to me. Um, Norton, I'm just a little bit confused because I'm not familiar with the effort you're describing. Like, when did the civic cooperators have anyone who stepped up to lead the charge against gerrymandering? Um, I, I'm not really sure, you know, with the people who were rolling up their sleeves to collaborate in this group, our time was completely maxed out. Like, there's just no way that I or Dustin could have just said, hey, now I'm also going to fight gerrymandering on top of everything else I'm doing. So I'm just not clear on was that a, an actual thing where people were there was a side project to do that, that was, and then that fell apart, quote unquote. That was an actual thing when Ellen and Dave were initially part of this group. When we were talking about it initially, we were talking about uh, from the beginning of the whole discussion was the fact that we wanted to um, bring civility and reasonableist and reasonable reasonable thought process back into uh, democracy and that's one of the things that I was you know Ryan was looking for was having real democratic discussions and the most undemocratic well, we did we was, we we've well, done that let, like let, I, let, let, let me just quickly let you know where the beginning of this is is when Ellen and Dave were initially part of this um, in the beginning, right at the beginning in the library and even the next time, but I don't know why they dropped out. They basically dropped away. So, so you are right. The, the discussions over the last year since, uh, um, since this didn't begin, uh, Ellen and Dave have moved on, but one of their initiatives, one of the uh, angry grandmothers or whatever they're called was- Badass grandmas. Yeah, the badass grandmas. Anyway, what they were trying to do, and then they built this really horrible um, initiative that they were trying to bring to the uh, Constitution. So instead of just concentrating on that effort, they uh, basically turned it into a, a, they tried to take a Cessna airplane and turn it into a, a you know, subsonic bomber by through loading everything they could into that initiative and it destroyed it. So, but that's what I was trying to get at, Ali, is that in the beginning, that's what I wanted to see was, was that we would have more of a impact on, on the discourse in this state. So. I just, I don't really think the failure of measure three is something to do with this, what the civic cooperators didn't like failed to do. I, I just, oh, no, I don't like, say you know, that. I, um, uh, you know, I think that, um, you know, Ellen was a part of our group shopping for collaborators herself. And I, I do know why they stopped attending. It just wasn't the best use of their time, given their specific goals. So um, they like being connected to our group. 
but they got really laser focused on, well, essentially what became measure three and time was scarce. And so, you know, that was the path that they went down and they were certainly trying to address a lot of the things that, you know, you were hoping we could address. But I guess I, I guess I just didn't really, I had more realistic expectations for what 2020 was going to look like. I wanted to move the needle in the right direction and I feel confident that we did. Um, and I didn't expect to solve corruption overnight, but uh, we had a lot of great um, nonpartisan, bipartisan, panpartisan, crosspartisan, however, however you want to think about it, conversations uh, with voters. We had a ideologically diverse coalition against Measure 2. I think that's really important stuff. Um, and I think that is us accomplishing the goals that we were setting out to accomplish. We also had that information that we had that discussion. I don't we called it a pan-partisan discussion. Um, on basically money and politics, uh, where we explored, you know, the governor's pack and stuff like that. And that was, um, you know, it's not always easy to get conservatives to participate at the same rate as progressives, but there was diversity there too. So I felt really good about those things. They were hard thought. Uh, they, 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 they were a lot harder to make happen than it looks like from the outside. Um, and to me, it's a better place than, my community was one year ago in some ways. Obviously, the pandemic has screwed a lot up and Trump has misled a lot of people. We have a lot of problems, but um, but there's a little bit of an infrastructure now that didn't exist before that is panpartisan. And I look forward to leveraging it. I, I think there aren't that um, if if you're concerned that that our, this group did not participate in the measure three side of things enough that the result of measure three proves that that decision was a good one because it fell apart because they didn't have their, their uh, ducks in a row either. And, um, you know, when, when you look at things, it, you, you've, you've got to make a decision as to what groups are going to be the most effective either both either on the actual um, objective side of things or on the uh, the planning and and brainstorming side of things uh, sometimes those things are disconnected and I think that this is more of a uh, spitball type of group to, to bounce things off of people that more than uh, you know, actually having a, 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 you know, set of an agenda goals um, because there's, we don't have the critical mass to really take on a lot um, that, I mean, as, as this group is, uh, I think that we, we would have to have a considerable increase in, in regular participation to really take on a lot more and uh, right now, uh, you know, th there's two ways of doing that. Either you get people who want to collaborate and and create that mission, or you pick something from a hat and try to recruit based off of that. Um, in my experience, it, it's very difficult to do either of those unless there is, you know, the 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 feeling that you're under attack, which is what we had with Measure Two. And and when you when you're on offense, and, and so you know I think that 
when, when you're talking about not getting enough done, um, you know, it's, it's a long, you got to look at the, the 20, 30, 40 year window rather than, you know, the one year window. Well, I, I think you guys are misinterpreting my, my uh, sense of, I'm not disappointed in this group. I think this group has done everything they can to have some very good um, discussions. Okay, and, and I never doubted that. That's why I'm still here. I, and so I never ever said that, oh, why? have hopes that somewhere, some way that our, uh, you know, that our, our, that civility will come back. I and mean, maybe after Trump is possibly gone from office, there will be more civility, but, and there will be more of a concentration on uh, money and politics as to how we can remove some of that. But it, I, I guess I am only looking to say that in my own private expectations, I wish there was just a, a way that there would be more, as you say, uh, Dustin, critical mass toward making these changes. So, but if people aren't involved, people aren't involved. I, I, that's just the way it is. And I appreciate all of you for caring enough that you do spend this time. So that's, I, I would never discredit what's going on in this group. And I guess, Ellie, you took that as a criticism and it was not. I just went off of the literal words that you said. I am definitely a literalist and that's how I perceive, that's how I process information. So I think sometimes you, you don't express what you really mean. Um, and it definitely gives a different impression to me. Oh, okay. Well, thanks for that, uh, Norton and Ellie and Dustin, um, Richard and Jim, um, I'm interested to hear where you guys are coming from uh, looking back over this last year. Jim, go ahead. Okay, well, I can, I, so this is Richard. Um, I'm really glad to be here today. Um, feels like we've been kind of on a school break or something. <laughs> uh, so I, uh, I, I've been up and down a little bit. I should have turned my camera off. Maybe I'm trying to make a little lunch here too at the same time, but I've been listening. And so the first thing I would like to say is thank you, uh, Ryan, for your very thoughtful, um, detailed recap. Um, I, I'll be honest with you, I haven't read through every word yet, but I'm gonna take the time. I thought it was very, very good. And, and I kind of skipped to the bottom um, a little bit. And so thank you for that. Thank you for that time, that energy. Um, you know, I know that you have family and you have other things going on. And so thank you for the time that you commit to the cooperative. Um, Ellie, I thought it was so funny. What did you say? Um, you called it, you, when you got the letter, you thought it was kind of cryptic. Um, and and you, you, you joke in your household with your husband about the cooperative being a, uh, what was the word you used? Oh, uh, the cult. It's the cult. The cult. Okay. okay, so I, I recently referred to it as the coven. <laughs> So, uh, because there's somebody, awesome. there's someone that I want to invite. And, you know, for me, I was first introduced to the group by Ellen Chafee, I believe. And, and so, and it seemed, you know, a lot of what kind of seems to happen there seems to happen on the down low and under, and that, that might be kind of crippling sometimes because then when things do go to the court or they are being challenged by the other party, 
there's not already that momentum of people to kind of rise up against it. That's another topic. So I, I, I refer to it as a coven because um, the NDHRC has recently hired um, to be, to move, as Dustin says, from that defense all the time to the offense, right? Um, we were fortunate, the North Dakota Human Rights Coalition was fortunate to have three great applicants for the, the uh, legislative coordinator this year. And um, we chose um, uh, Brandy uh, Hardy. Um, so I had, I had I didn't call it a coven to her, but I had I had she I had sent her the email Ryan and forwarded it to her. Um, she seems like you know a very good friend and someone who would want to be involved and um, uh, and no more. And so uh, and but I did tell her she goes oh maybe I can jump on later and I'm like well you know don't don't jump on right quite yet because. I think there's some kind of like, to be fair to the group, some protocol of proper introduction and kind of have people an opportunity there to, to think about the people that might be coming to the table. So that, that was kind of funny that you say that. I, I just, I found a lot of humor in that um, because I, I always do want to respect the anonymity of folks, right? Um, and that kind of thing. So um, is anyone familiar with Brandy? Yeah, I definitely know her. Okay. Um, I got to know her when... She had founded um, Invisible Innocence, the nonprofit focused on educating folks on human trafficking. And she ran for District 47 Senate yep. in 2018. And she was also, I, there's, for lack of a better way to put this, she was like my camp counselor. Uh, at, there's this um, women's training, new leadership oh, institute at okay. um, like uh, the, the on the campus in Moorhead. And she was like a leader in that. And uh, I went in 2019. We lived in dorms for the better part of a week and just trained as activists and um, leaders. And it's just really, really neat stuff. And so Brandy was my kind of sort of camp counselor in that circumstance. Cool. That's very cool. Um, and so you would support that invitation? Um, well, honestly, I'm not sure that it's quite her style. Um, she operates at a certain, well, she has a certain operational tempo that. Agreed. It's kind of hard to explain it. Yeah. It's, um, she, I, I really like her, mm -hmm. um, but we might be a little too meandery for right. her style. And we need her style right now. She is also a military veteran, decorated military veteran. Um, and the NDHRC, as, as you know, to, to re just frame it from Dustin's perspective, need to be on the offense rather than the defense. Um, we also might be doing, you know, she may also be doing some other representation for other bills and that kind of thing. But so that was, that was one thing I wanted to bring up is, you know, you know, how do we invite folks to the group if we think that this might be something for them? Because quite frankly, as I reflect, this has been an awesome experience for me educationally. Um, you know, I, in many ways, just getting, you know, I refer to some of you as the, the, the brilliant young minds of North Dakota. Um, uh, but I, I, and I've only said that to Jerry uh, or to Barry. Um, so I don't talk about the group widely, but Barry Nelson, who's our staff with the NDHRC. And, and so, you know, I refer, refer to this group as the brilliant young minds, some of the brilliant young minds. And I said, there's other folks involved too, but. I'm just, you know, conversation. Um, I'm proud of what we did on measure two. I really, really am. I'm sorry that measure three failed. Um, I do, you know, Dustin, unfortunately, I've had to come to understand better your 
Um, you know, how do you need eat an elephant? The reality and acceptance of that. Um, I don't want incremental change. I want big change now, especially, you know, when it comes to things like domestic violence, sexual assault, you know, hate crime or bias crime, you know, but, you know, realizing I recently spoke to an attorney who lives outside of the state and who lived here. Um, gosh, I'm forgetting his name all of a sudden, but um, Tim, um, but he lives in the cities now and, and he was at the university and he, he sued the university over some human rights things. And, but he had said, you know, you know, when I look over there sometimes, he goes, it's like you're still all fighting the wild, wild west. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and he goes, so he goes, you're doing mission work right at home. And um, as someone who went to school initially to be a missionary and was on that path, um, you know, I, that kind of resonated with that. So I believe that we're doing, you know, this group is doing the mission work here. And, and it might be in a different way. Um, and it might be through, you know, I don't know why Ellen and Dave didn't come back after Measure 3. I, I don't know. Um, you know, I'd like to you know, see people back. But I guess the group is going to evolve however it evolves. And we had some great things that were interrupted by COVID. And I think just the very fact that we we laser focused on one issue pretty much and carried that home was a very positive thing. Um, so I, I see, you know, no negatives uh, whatsoever. And um, I just thank you all for allowing me to be part of the group. Thank you, Richard. Um, I, I'll respond to some of your questions here at the end, but I want to hear from Jim before we get to kind of reactions. Jim. Are you there? Jim, are you, have you stepped away? Are you somewhere you can't speak? He unmuted, oh, no, my, but... My, my, audio, my audio, um, I got new earbuds and they're not working usually. <laughs> uh, can you hear me now? Yes, yes, we can. Okay. Um, yeah, I... I was very grateful that this group started and um, it's been a time trick for me this year because I have two full-time jobs and two kids that are homeschooling. So I mainly have to read the notes to catch up with everything. There's very few Sundays I can be at a full meeting. And then this one I have until about three that I have to be get back to this family thing we're doing at the river. Um, but I guess my question is, I really appreciate the conversations we're having, and these are the conversations that nationally politics and locally politics should be looking at. And um, it's like the elephant in the room. No one will, no one will talk about the, these issues in, in a way of suggesting systemic change, and and so. I wish these conversations were happening with politicians in North Dakota that are serving. And I, and I look at our group and say, well, where, why couldn't we have um, whoever, whether it would be like a Rick Becker or a Bob Martinson or a, or, or a um, Governor Burgum or, or anybody, you know, uh, on both sides of the aisle um, taking part in these conversations. I, I just, um, I wonder if and when and how it would ever bust into um, the boots on the ground. And that's, that's, we, that's we did have, mostly, thank you. 
We had two legislators who participated in our um, Zoom discussion on money and politics. Yeah, awesome. So, are there are there are there politicians that want to take this um, and and bring this somehow into North Dakota practice? Um, any of these conversations or concepts and, and, you know, is there that next level? I think Marvin Nelson would, so he was one of the two legislators who was with us that day. Um, and I, I bet we could recruit him to do more stuff with us and facilitate these things. I, obviously he's, he's busy. So, you know, but he does, he is more available than the average politician. It's yeah, a matter of reaching out to people. Right. Well, and I think, um, well, for, I think that's a great open question, Jim, going forward, how to engage with the system without um, supporting the system involuntarily in the, in the engagement. Um, but I want to take it back to, what, to the first thing that, uh, that Ellie said, referring to this to a cult um, or, or as Richard said, a coven, which may be cooler. Maybe we should go with coven. Uh, and then Jim was talking about the elephant in the room. So something we're afraid to talk about, but we're all aware of and is, um, and they're all reacting to, but not wanting to talk about it. So I think all three of those are actually related to what was on my mind when I wrote that first thing, which was, I signed it, the, our, our collective unconscious. So a way to, um, voice, vocalize, articulate what, um, the things that we're not talking about or the the ways in the world we're not actualizing because of this or that structural um, or habitual um, roadblock. And so I, I think I'll take that as a compliment from both uh, Ellie and Richard, because uh, I, I think there is an element of that. Um, and it, it kind of goes back to what we talked a lot about during the year, which was this lack of trust. Um, to me, I think the trust, the lack of trust is, 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 is um, as pronounced as it's been ever perhaps uh, in this country's history. But I think it's a, um, a logical conclusion based on the, some of the choices that, and some of the things that have just developed over the last 300 years in, um, in world history. And I'm, I'm talking like the, the rise of rationalism and the decline of religion um, and other traditional um, things we held in common or um, belief structures, value systems. Um, they've all kind of crumbled as rationality has increased. And so I think Part of the unconscious uh, thing we desire would be something to believe in, and some 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 commonality, um, and an opportunity to be some a part of something that's bigger than ourselves. And so I think all of those um, reflections that you everyone's brought up kind of point at that, maybe indirectly, but that's where my mind goes. Um, so I, I think that's out there. Um, how do you have community when that we have nothing really in common anymore? We're, we're in the midst, the 300-year uh, grand experiment of democracy um, and uh, secularism, and uh, now we're trying to address racism and inequality um, at the same time. And uh, it's been uh, a successful experiment to the extent that we're still here as a country, but um, I think we're caught up a little bit too much in the history and instead um, taking a longer view. I think incrementalism is a great um, a great way to view some of this stuff, because um, you know, 
a lot of one of the themes I didn't write down, but came out in, in some of the meeting notes I went through was this um, idea of getting back to, you know, what the Constitution says, what the founding fathers had in mind. And uh, I think there are some good things there, but there are also some things we may want to uh, shove, shove off to a degree and, and uh, evolve away from. And uh, instead of looking back 300 years, maybe look forward 300 years. And uh, 2020 sucks living through it, but it's perhaps um, looking back 300 years from now, perhaps it is um, one of the seminal moments that created a transition to um, a more perfect union. So the things that we talk about that were in the constitution and in the framers words, perhaps we're, we're actually getting to the point where we're semi able to realize them, but it's very painful, especially when we have this no common commonality to, 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 uh, to draw from and to, you know, have solace in and have this common authority that we can kind of um, refer to when we have disagreements. Uh, so I, I love those um, reflections. And I, I also love this idea of incrementalism because it, um, it is the way that the world works, unfortunately, or fortunately, um, things change slowly. Um, I think as individuals, we, uh, we, do, we, we do want things to happen overnight. And um, when we're stuck within a bureaucracy, within a system that moves slow, we, uh, we get frustrated easily and apathetic and distracted and overcommitted. And, uh, and so the change that we see is uh, obvious and inevitable takes way longer than it should. And we just get pissed off. Um, so to me, it becomes a question of what can we do individually and collectively? The individual part is so you can actually feel good about what you're doing <laughs> and feel like you are making a change. And then the collective part is that we can only do things collectively, really. Um, real change takes everyone's effort. Uh, so how do you marry the individual with the collective um, change? Yeah. It's an interesting um, discussion in the environmental movement, too, because um, lots of people get stuck, um, you know, recycling all their stuff every day uh, to make themselves feel good but then continue to participate in, in, in larger structures that do way more damage. Um, and so how do you marry you know, your individual actions with the collective actions? Uh, and to me, one of the things we've kind of touched on is um, kind of having micro, micro revolutions in our own lives, ways that we can um, approach conversations, approach um, situations that we um, are a little afraid of, a little um, emotional sometimes, and uh, and just go with it, or, or put ourselves out there to have a conversation with someone that disagrees with us, and to do it um, in a respectful way, but still challenge each other. So you can, you know, there's some learning, some um, exchange of information, and it's not just all politeness. I think that that's a very powerful way to, as, at the individual level, to actually um, feel like you're making a difference because it is these one-on-one -on -one conversations, unfortunately, that <laughs> are what change people um, for better or worse, really. Um, but it's just in the act of that conversation where you can get some, you can maybe plant a seed that doesn't sprout for another couple of years, but it was that conversation that did it. Whether it's because, you know, you want, you want them to wear a mask and they're not wearing a mask or they're wearing a mask, but it's not covering their nose. And you're like, but that's like half of <laughs> that's half of the, the infectious particles are coming out of your nose. I mean, whether, whatever the conversation is, just the, the, the very small micro-revolutionary challenge to their way, you know, a bit respectful, face-to-face, eye-to-eye, uh, that, that's what changes people, is, is actually being challenged a little bit on the personal level. Um, 
I think we've gotten away from that for various reasons, but I think that's one of the ways we can potentially make ourselves feel like we're doing the right thing, but also help um, change other people's minds. Um, I wanted to get to the idea of structural reforms too, um, like Norton was talking about. I think those are, are vital um, and, and um, the difficulty is knowing, it's hard to see the structures when, when they're, they're there. And it's hard to know what would be different if there were different structures, unless you build a different structure and experience it. Uh, so, so to get someone to adopt the structure without it being in existence is pretty much impossible. You can't articulate something that's not in existence um, and then say, well, it'll change your behavior if you're there. If you walk into this building I haven't built, you're gonna change, you know, I mean, you're gonna, you're gonna see God in, in this church that I built. Well, you gotta build the church and bring people in before they, see God. And so the structural reform piece is, is a lot about actually creating that structure so people can experience it and doing it um, in a way that uh, isn't oppositionally defined. So uh, think about the, uh, the anti-fa <laughs> movements, uh, which God love them. Who likes, fa you know, who, who wants to be a fascist? Um, though I think it's a human desire sometimes to be told what to do. Um, but the whole anti-fascist movement is very opposite, oppositionally defined. And uh, so they don't stand for anything other than the, the extinction of something else, um, which is not a structural reform. It's, um, it's actually a, a structural reinforcement in many ways. It creates a um, relationship that is mutually beneficial to both sides. And, uh, and so while I think the protests are important, I think it's also important to not be uh, oppositionalists. We have to, you know, articulate what we believe our vision is, and uh, and then try to create it, and then join others to experience it with us. And so, um, like Dustin said, and like Richard was talking about, um, we've spent way too much time on defense. <laughs> what is what does it mean to be on defense uh, in the political cultural realm? It means uh, thinking a lot about what they're thinking about and trying to understand what motivates them, and uh, you know, trying to get inside their head and be like, why do they think these things? Um, which is, you know, important. But what it does uh, is it takes up a lot of time, and then we don't have as much time to articulate what we believe in. Like, what's our vision? What's um, where's our uh, utopia? And uh, and so this kind of interpretive labor that gets um, placed on the uh, the parties that are uh, in an unequal relationship, the people that are suffering inequalities, structural or otherwise, they have all this interpretive labor they're doing all the time to try to figure out what the people in power are doing, and. Uh, and so it kind of keeps them in their place. It's kind of another one of those cycles that um, the more you would participate in it, the more that you get stuck in it. And so I would encourage, and I, I don't know how, how possible this is, but I would encourage us to get out, off the defensive uh, mindset and um, not be opposing things, but be articulating these new things. And not only articulating them, but building them in a way that people can experience them and don't have to be told anything, they just have an experience and, um, the experience changes them, not not your words and not your arguments. But uh, so, uh, you know, changing that frame of mind, how can we get into the offensive frame of mind? So, you know, for Democrats, that means stop thinking about what the Republicans are, you know, what makes them tick. Um, figure out what makes you tick and, uh, and try to make it um, in the world. Uh, my biggest problem with the Democrats um, nationally and locally is that um, they are not articulating anything. There's no grand vision of anything. Um, I don't even know what they think in North Dakota, the North Dakota Democrats. They don't seem to think about much um, that they articulate to me. And 
the national Democrats seem to want to go back to four years ago, which I think um, certain things need to be rolled back, sure. But it's not a vision. <laughs> it's not a vision you can get excited about. Um, we need to think more offensively, but that really what that means is just creatively. We got to put the thing in the world that we want and, um, and stop just being against everything. And that's uh, it, like a, a very individual mindset, but it can have collective ramifications too. So I, I would encourage us to get off defense because I think that that is a very accurate um, characterization of, of some of the things that we've been doing over the last year. And, and I think the upcoming um, legislative session is a chance for us to articulate these new ways. So not just being like, I'm against this bill, but I'm against this bill because I have a better idea and this is it. Why don't you guys do this? Um, or here's an amendment to your law that will fix it so it's better. You know, um, being helpful in, in the sense that here are solutions, not just your your solution sucks and I hate it. Why, why are you doing this kind of stuff? Um, so I think that's, I'll stop there. I have, we're almost at the hour mark. I, wa I want to spend the rest of our time going on the offensive um, and, and going on it in two ways. So there, there's um, looking back, you know, kind of assessing what we've done. And then there's, uh, I think they're in all organizations, whether they're ad hoc or formal, um, should take time from time to time to um, question their own existence. <laughs> Not everything needs to you know, continually exist forever. Um, it can either change or it can die. And sometimes that's good and it's okay. And uh, we shouldn't just keep doing something because that's what we've been doing. Um, we should always be reassessing and, and, and tinkering and changing. So I would, uh, first of all, as we look forward, what's the purpose of this group and does it deserve to exist? Um, uh, one of the things I've been thinking about the last week is this idea of, are you trying to keep your job? Or are you trying to do your job? And uh, originally the, 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 that kind of dichotomy came up to me um, thinking about politicians were always complaining, ah, oh, they're just trying to keep their jobs. They're just trying to get elected. That's all they do. And that is a, a, a large amount of what they do. Um, and maybe if they really did their job, they wouldn't have a job anymore, and maybe that's okay. But the problem with that criticism to me is that we, we, all, <laughs> we all are faced with that choice of keeping our job or doing our job, whether, however we define jobs, um, whether that's a, the thing that you use to, to, to pay for the things that you need, or it's just um, a habit you have, or a hobby. Um, I think we should all be thinking about that in our individual levels, whether we're just doing the job to keep the job or we're doing the job because the job needs to be done and we're actually trying to potentially make ourselves obsolete in the process of completing our jobs. And you know, as it relates to this group, maybe this group becomes something else, maybe it changes, maybe it continues as is. Um, I think it should be an open question. That's part of the, the, the review process. So that's number one. Number two, I, I wanna hear people's positive visions for the things they would like to work on in the next year. So not the things, uh, you know, sometimes we do have to play defense. Measure two might come down the road again, but pretend it's not, we don't have to defeat anything terrible. What do you actually want to work on that's fun and would create something new? And uh, how can we each other um, help each other, support each other, um, become greater than the sum of our own parts um, just through this collaborative process? So that's my prompt for the next um, bit of this call. Um, I welcome anyone to jump in there um, who has an idea on, on any of those topics. Well, I'll tell you what, what I'll be doing for the legislative session and, and for those who can see the screen, I will actually pop up the share. So, so what I'm planning to be doing here 
is Damn. because the legislature is now going to be not only having floor sessions on video, but also um, committees on video. And they've already got a few of them in during the interim and they're already logged in in the, the recording section. Uh, you know, I've always for the since 2007, I've written uh, email updates uh that show what bills I'm tracking uh, gives an idea of what's happening on it. Who's the opposite, who are the factions on it and, you know, telling people which, which bills are, you know, you keep an eye on, but don't worry about them versus those that need, you know, massive reaction from the public. Uh, so my goal is that because we'll have video is to be able to utilize the committee hearing uh, video a lot more uh, in, in, in those updates and basically create uh, not only uh, single bill updates about what's going on, but also kind of a compilation like a, like a, a week in review video kind of podcast type thing, uh, utilizing that. And, uh, you know, in, in most sessions, uh, I was looking at my, my watch list for the last two sessions, and I had about 150 bills on my list to keep an eye on. With, I believe, last session, I only testified on like 28, which was like the lowest that I've ever done. Uh, back in 2011, I testified on 62 bills, which was a little bit overkill. <laughs> but uh, the nice thing about having video of, of the uh, committees is that so many times from for myself at least there's three committees that I want to be in for three different bills at the same time and and you know you kind of know how long each one is going to take but you don't really know and being able to be in three places at once is impossible for most people so uh, uh, this will drastically increase the ability to know what's actually going on in the room uh, I believe they're also going to be videoing committee work, which is something that very rarely have I even sat in for committee work. Uh, you know, you, you've got the the open hearing testimony side of of each bill where everybody comes in, gives their their speech and then they walk out. But those who actually work the bills, um, uh, they then go to when when the committee is discussing it, which is not. I mean, it's a closed door because there's a door. But it's it's open to the public. Very few people even go to them. You know, I, I've probably over 15 years only participated in maybe 50 uh, committee work uh, hearings as the bill progresses in the committee. Um, and, and that's simply because most of the time I know where a bill is going and I, I know who I need to talk to if if it's on the borderline. Um, and and so having access to that video is going to be an eye opener for a lot of people because they're going to see how, how hog housing works and, and all these different maneuvers that, that committees do. And so being able to highlight that is, is one of my, uh, my goals for the session. Uh, and uh, once, you know, probably another week and a half, we'll start to see some of the, the pre-filed bills hit the screen and, um, be able to develop those lists. And, and I think that one of the things that this group can do is, is uh, 
help develop that watch list and, and getting the word out on different bills, you know, that uh, there, there just isn't a lot of, of general public dissemination of this stuff because you've got individual groups, you know, like, like Richard's human rights coalition, they have their audience that hears about the bills that they care about. But most of those bills, unless they're those goofy bills that, you know, make make the legislature look dumb. Uh, the public generally doesn't hear about them, so I think that there's going to be a lot more opportunity uh, with with more video and more more exposure. And my guess is that the legislators are not going to like this. I mean, that, <laughs> going back to uh, you know, I remember when I had a discussion with with Wes Belter in 2011 about. Why don't we have video and committees? Because South Dakota's had audio for forever, going back to like 2003. Um, and and uh, Wes Belter said, well, you're going to have Democrats grandstanding. And I was like, you're more likely to have Republicans grandstanding. <laughs> and you know, this was the, the opposition to, to having video in the room was this grandstanding fear. Now they have to do it. And, and it'll be interesting to see what, uh, what comes of it for sure. I want to piggyback on that quick, Dustin, um, and then kick it over to Jim before he's got to go at three. But um, I love that idea. I, I agree with you. There's not a public dissemination of ge generally what's going on in, you know, um, a weekend review of what the legislative legislators doing, uh, legislative bodies doing and, and what's up for, you know, in the committee schedule and just kind of lifting the veil on that process, both from, uh, hey, this is what they're talking about to, hey, if you want to go and testify, here's the time. Or, you know, hey, check out this crazy person <laughs> doing whatever, you know, I, I just think there, there is that's um, that's a need within our community. So I think um, I'd love to be a part of that and, and help develop a list of things to watch. The thing I had written down that I was going to get to later, but um, since you brought it up uh, and I want to get your opinion real quick and I a kind of um, ad hoc group that would agree to testify. Um, on things as they come up, as we believe it's beneficial, um, you know, provided that we believe in, you know, we're not testifying against our own personal opinion, but um, just a way to support each other and, and try to get, you know, I, I, I believe that not only are they going to video the community meetings, but you can um, testify via Zoom or something yep. like that. That's so the plan, as I've been told. Yeah, so there's a great opportunity for people like myself that are stuck at home most of the day to participate and, um, and help out, but do it from my computer. And I think if we could put together five to 10 people that'd be like, hey, we're the testifying club <laughs> and uh, we'll testify, you know, as long as we're in agreement, we'll testify for it. And um, you can write your own testimony or, you know, maybe we can write it for you. If you don't have an opinion too much one way or the other, you don't have time to write something up, we could provide, um, you know, some stock testifying uh, quotes, some talking points and, um, just a way to, you know, this is a great opportunity for democracy. So we're talking about structural reforms. This is a structural reform that um, makes it easier to get our voices heard. So we should um, exploit it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, it's it certainly, I mean, when it when it gets down to it, this this group can actually function more like what we originally talked to talked about on our first phone call, you and I personally, of you know, the, the kind of the model that I'm used to, which was a center-right coalition where you have all the, the, the factions that come together and they're not working necessarily together, but they're working to keep each other 
up to date on what's going on so that each one can can grab on to what they care about and so it becomes more of a of a uh, uh, central hub uh, curated information center than a a actual political entity uh, and and by doing that it, it I think would create a, a, a draw for, for people to come in and maybe this would be a way to get more people to come in. If we have four or five people keeping track of their, um, their own, uh, you know, tracking lists as far as bills and we compile those, you know, the, the state on the legislative website, the, their tracking system is, is okay. It's not great, of course, because it is the state after all. Uh, and, you know, so what I always do is I have that tracking system and then I also do a Google Doc tracking system. And and if we had, you know, more than two people plugging in, you know, if we had five people plugging in, keeping an eye on bills, you know, we could have a different sheet for different issues. Um, you know, we, we could have a lot more uh, uh ability to keep track of things and, and get that out to, to the certain crowds and, um, you know, be more useful that way. Yeah. It sounds like, a, uh, um, it sounds fun. And I think it's, it would provide a service and, um, it would be kind of a, a network of, um, mutually supportive, um, uh, efforts to influence legislation on a kind of a citizens, citizen level, not a, a you know, corporate level or, um, um, ideological level, and I think that's um, a really we a real cool innovation for our our community. And um, kudos to the to the state for deciding to go video and um, and allowing Zoom testimony. Jim, I know you got to go. Any um, anything you'd like to see built? Any you got any visions for twenty twenty one? I know you're working on a film. I mean, it's probably taking up most of your creative visioning. But anything else? I think the thing that to me is most important is that our entire North Dakota economy is now um, banking on literally uh, oil and fossil fuels. And we know that worldwide and even nationally, um, our North Dakota banks are not getting loaned anymore. They're not, the rest of the world, like of America, are looking at North Dakota banks and saying, we're not going to. We're not going to give you any money because they know they're all oil and coal banks is where the the money is coming from. It used to be, we used to be an ag state. So right now we're in a sinking ship and we're still putting all our eggs in one basket. We're still subsidizing coal and fossil fuels three to five times more than we're subsidizing uh, wind or clean energy. And um, so we're a welfare state for fossil fuels and we're putting this money into a dying market that has no future. And um, so what's going to happen is all these out-of-state companies are going to take over everything. And I mentioned parts of this before, but I mean, Ranger's working on a several hundred megawatt farm south of Mandan. There's another company that I was just told about, like ADP or ETP um, outside of Fargo. There's a Geronimo 200 megawatt project right outside of Castleton or or in the, you know, somewhere in that Red River Valley, very close to um, Fargo Castleton. And um, right now, if you look at the land leases, the land leases are being bought out 
all of them right now, by huge out-of-state solar companies. It used to be that our land leases were all bought out by out-of-state oil companies, and then it was out-of-state wind companies that are buying out the land. So when we want to have a wind farm, we actually have to pay and negotiate with our local farmers by negotiating with out-of-state corporations that already own the rights to our local farmers' land and the leases. So that's a major problem. And it's just getting worse. So this is because we are putting all of our legislative incentives into incentivizing more fossil fuels. We get COVID care money. We have $16 million we haven't spent. Oh, let's give it to out-of-state oil companies in North Dakota. What? You know, why couldn't there have been $16 million given to solar companies or wind companies? Because we give our money Sadly, we invest our money into fossil fuels. And um, so right now, the most important thing that North Dakota could do if we gave a shit about having any kind of an economy in the future is take as much money as we have from the legacy fund and as much money as we can and use it to transition all the coal and oil workers into green energy, solar farm, wind projects, retrofitting, Energy efficiency, that's where all the federal money is for grants. That's where the whole economy is. Number one job on planet Earth right now is solar installer, outpacing all other job growth. Um, Look at all the houses that don't have solar. Look at all the farms that we could be building. They're going to retire coal power plants up to the tune of one gigawatt within the next 10 10 years in North Dakota. That's 200 megawatts every two years. That's crazy. That's like a $200 million investment. And all that money is going to leave the state again because we are refusing to incentivize local and we're refusing to incentivize North Dakotans to do clean energy. We're rather making it impossible for North Dakotans to do with clean energy than out-of-state corporations that can leverage out-of-state tax breaks on top of federal tax breaks on top of um, energy RECs, renewable energy credits, are winning all the bids. So... If we really cared and if we want to have money in the future, we will take our money and transition to clean energy, which is going to be here forever from here on out. And um, so how do we do that? We seriously need new legislation. Um, and and, and I, I think of Cody Two Bears and he said, what's the point in working in politics? He got out of politics and he created his own solar farm and his own nonprofit. He's like, you can't do anything in politics, really. And in North Dakota, I wouldn't say that. I would say that if we wanted to pass a bill about clean energy, all that happens is the legislators look and they ask the rural co-ops, N-D-A-R-E-C, and um, they ask the co-ops and the public utilities, the electric utilities, what do you think? And then they pretty much tell them what to do because that's where all their money is coming from. So how do we convince utilities... um, Local utilities and renewable, the the NDARCs, the rural electric co-ops, to create renewable energy programs that are going to keep the money here and incentivize North Dakotans to have an advantage and a preference, a priority over out-of-state companies when renewable energy projects are being built and bid right now. Well, last session, if you remember, there was a bill um, to impose a five uh, percent tax on wind. They, they actually it didn't go anywhere because there was you know but I, I uh, lobbied against it and there was enough other people 
that it didn't go anywhere because it was a dumb bill. But, uh, you know, the, the fact is that, you know, the, the, the thinking in the legislature is actually the opposite of what you're talking about. And, uh, you know, this is where incrementalism kind of comes in, which is where we got to get away from, in, in my view, the idea that we need to incentivize one side or the other at all. You know, until we can get to a neutral standpoint, we're never going to get to a point where you guys can promote what you want to promote. You know, at least get the, the middle ground first. Yeah, Dustin, I think that's that is the incremental approach. Um, is to just remove the subsidy um, um, system, you know, or start to cut it, roll it back would be I guess, an incremental approach. Um, with the idea that, um, you know, we're interfering in the free market would be number one. Mm-hmm. And then number two would be, you know, the idea that um, somehow politicians have been, uh, you know, maybe the people of North Dakota have been made to the desire their own exploitation. And so we, we, um, we think so little of ourselves that we, we, um, we welcome in outside investments to come and, you know, make us money instead of being like, you know, we're self-sufficient. We can take care of ourselves. We can, you know, use the, leverage our own community and do things. But we've been made to desire our own exploitation, and whether that's capitalism or in North Dakota mindset, um, our, our politicians' mindset, I guess it's to be determined. But um, I find it funny how we were just like, yeah, <laughs> um, we, we like outsiders when, when, when they're coming to exploit us um, economically, but otherwise screw off. You know, it's 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 really weird. Um, yeah, well, um, but thanks for that, Jim. It would be an interesting. Um, I, I think the idea would be to cut cut subsidies and make a very conservative argument to do so. I, I would I would love to cut subsidies and for everybody across the board, and then then fossil fuels don't stand a chance ever. They get the ass right. kicked, um, and especially with uh, energy now storage. Energy storage systems, those huge, you know, 400 megawatt battery systems. But um, here's the problem, though: we cut all our subsidies locally for fossil fuels and, and renewable. Renewable would win, but the out-of-state companies are going to win because North Dakota has no local incentives. Um, whereas a Minnesota company will leverage Minnesota incentives, they'll leverage RECs, they'll leverage other national stuff as well as the federal stuff. And all we can ever leverage is the federal. So we're going to always get outbid. So there has to be some kind of an impediment against out-of-state and a prefer North Dakota. It's like a North Dakota Main Street initiative for renewables so that we don't get beat all the time by out-of-state renewables. But I got to run. Um, thanks for listening to all that, and I look forward to having these dialogues. I want to really laud you on that, Jim. I think you're absolutely right. We've been a petrol state for too long. And if there's any way that I could be involved in anything to um, move that pro- that process, uh, it, it's it's just I, I really applaud everything you said. So, thank you. Thank you. All right. See you guys. Hey, Jim. I wanted to respond a bit to the call to go on the offense, not always defense. Um, to be honest, I think we've already started doing that. Um, it's kind of an interesting question because um, I thought we were already well on our way. Sorry, what did someone say? I said hip hip hooray because I think we I think oh. we I think we've moved to okay. that. Okay, yeah, yeah. So yes, yeah. so um, 
Um, well, one really uh, salient example is the discussion around electronic signatures for the petition process for ballot measures and also with any look for candidates. Um, I, you know, Dustin's already done some preliminary work, preliminary work on that. Um, and I've spread the word to some collaborators who would like to fight for electronic signatures to come into existence as well. I think it would be just it could be really amazing. This this has this idea has so much potential for engaging ordinary people in their own governance. And I think it's gonna probably take a while to make real life. So I'm I'm ready for the long haul in this. Um, I know that um, there has been some struggle on having a consistent uh, legislative sponsor on the idea. And so I, I understand that this is gonna take some time um, so we ha this legislative session is an opportunity to try to lobby for this to ha happen. Um, but people are getting fired up by the idea. And even if this, for all kinds of reasons, this legislative session is a weird one. And if there's no traction directly made on this, there are now people who are really excited by the idea and want to carry it through. So I think that it's a, it's an important idea. Um, I think it's gaining momentum. I think it's gain it's, People are getting interested in it, and it's very much us saying, this is the system we want to live in. We want to live in a system where it is more accessible to grassroots efforts, that grassroots candidates and grassroots uh, ballot measure um, committees um, should have greater access to their governance. And this electronic dissemination option, it could be very liberating. Um, you know, I do know somebody who was unable to run for office in June because of lacking a dozen signatures. So it's real, you know, it's not just about petitions. Um, and so I'm excited to support, keep supporting that evolving in that direction. Um, and that's very exciting to me. And I guess I thought other people were seeing that as a shift to me, that looked like the shift away from the defensiveness of measure two towards envisioning and pursuing something we actually want. Um, in fact, that wasn't that to me. That seemed like an explicit thing. Dustin pointed out, and it's something I pointed out too. Uh, you know, it was something. Rob Port did say to us, like, I don't remember verbatim what he said, but it was basically like, don't just keep shooting down everything and not have any solutions. Like, so um, here we are. Um, and so I'm very excited about this, and got some people who will join us if and when it comes time to email legislators to work on this problem. Um, but we'll just kind of pay attention throughout legislative session and see where we're at at the end of it and figure out if this is something we need to pursue in another fashion. Um, also, I'll mention that I am on the legislative committee of the North Dakota Women's Network. And so I will already also be uh, monitoring this, the session as it relates to women and family issues. Um, so I am happy to compare notes and kind of support a collective endeavor of bill watching. I will be in touch with our executive director regularly about things going on. Um, this isn't the first time I've, I've served in this way. And so I do have um, a session under my belt previously where I was on the legislative committee and I learned a ton. Um, I was able to support us acting to fight back against the attempt to like nullify North Dakota's ratification of the ERA. So, um, yeah, I've kind of seen how the shenanigans looks from the women's point of view. Um, I do have to say that women have no choice but to remain both on the defensive and 
pursue the offensive. So, you know, as a second class citizen, we are second class citizens. Um, we have to stay on the defensive. There's just no, we cannot transition away from one foot on, on that side. And we put the other foot in the offensive side. Um, so I will be working really hard to protect the status of women in North Dakota, which is constantly under attack. Um, and I just have no choice in that matter, but I am still excited to go on the offense where I can. Um, I, Dustin, your things you're going to take advantage of this year or not this year, but this, this legislative session sounds very exciting. Um, I love the way that you're leveraging this technology opportunity and it, it's definitely going to be a game changer. Um, I'm eager to see how it plays out. I personally will, you know, I will testify on things when I can. I do have to be a little bit careful because um, what, like vindictive, grumpy legislators like to email or call or just otherwise complain to agencies and say, why was your employer testifying? Don't they have work to do? As if we're not citizens who also have a right. So obviously I'm going to always have to use annual leave anytime I testify um, just to make it unambiguous. I'm not speaking on behalf of my employer. And then I have to be judicious about the number of times I do it because I'll get flagged and my employer will get harassed. And none of this is right or okay. I, I totally get what I'm saying. It's just bafflingly, bafflingly not okay. But this is the like life that I live in and it's not really, I can't negotiate my way out of it right now. Um, so I'm happy to swear in the ways I can. Uh, it will be somewhat limited at times. Um, and yeah, honestly, things are so different. There's so, there's so many wild cards going on right now that I feel kind of hopeful for a legislative session for the first time in a long time. I know it's probably going to be hard and exhausting to pay attention for those months, but it's an intriguing one with so many things being different. Maybe, maybe there's potential for some good novelty in there. So quick update on the electronic signatures. Uh, Representative Tom Kading has agreed to be the prime sponsor. Uh, he is, he's, uh, I talked to him on Wednesday and he's taken my draft language and he's going to go to legislative council with it. Uh, he told me if he, if I don't hear back from him by the 15th to, uh, get after him. So, uh, that's where it stands. Once we get actual draft language and legislative format, I can start doing the, uh, shopping for co-sponsors game and uh, get those lined up and and um, you know i i would like to once we have the language i would like to have it uh be one of these situations where we have a version start in the house and a different version in the senate so that we can get both chambers on the record even if it doesn't go through um so once once we get the language that process will start and it's always a horse race, you know, trying to get things done. And that first week of the session, uh, you know, it, it, you want to get these kind of bills in bills and resolutions in before they are on the clock, because after the first week or two, they're only allowed to put in five bills after a certain period in that next week. So you never, if you, if you are asking a legislator to put legislation in for you, get it in early so that it doesn't go against their quota. That's one of the tricks of the trade. If you're looking to get a bill in. On that, on that note, Dustin, if, if we have listeners um, tuning in here, 
Um, when when is too late? Is it still they still have time? If there is like I want a law, I want someone to introduce a law for me. Um, and they're listening right now. Could, could it could still potentially happen if they found the right um, willing legislator partner? Right. Oh yeah, right now it is. Um, the deadlines usually are. And let me see. The calendar might be up by now. Um, it's usually the house deadline is after the 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 second Monday. You, they can't put anything in. Let me see here real quick. Um, doo -doo -doo. They did start populating this stuff. Oh, legislative deadlines. Here we go. Okay. How, for House members, January 5th is when their clock for no more than five hits. And then their absolute deadline is uh on the 10th and then the senate clock starts on the 10th and their absolute deadline is the 15th and those are for bills then resolutions have a little bit longer um and and actually the uh constitutional measures have the longest because oftentimes things that uh don't make it other ways end up there that's why we always get like at in the end of january there's always this rush of like 20 new constitutional amendments that probably aren't going anywhere, but they're usually an attempt to uh, provoke a study bill. And, and generally, if you propose an actual amendment and then are willing to concede to it being converted to a study, you'll, you'll get that at the end. So, uh, yeah, I mean, there's plenty of time, but once session starts, they're, they're on a, a, a very short leash. And if you have not pre-drafted uh, what you want them to do, like if you come to them with just a broad idea and they're already in session, you probably aren't going to get a bill. You know, so you've got to have kind of your ducks in a row early or, you know, not at all. <laughs> well, if a person had a bill written, they would, um, they'd have a month at this point to find a sponsor willing to introduce it and and that person and that can you talk a little bit dustin about um your experiences uh stepping into a legislator's office with a bill in hand and being like uh hey <laughs> you want to help me out um how, how do those conversations go i know you've got relationships built now so you're not coming in there as a nobody but um how receptive are they and and how hands-on are they well our legislators don't have offices number one uh, which is an oddity nationally, I know. Uh, secondly, uh, it's really just confronting them in the hall, texting with them, emailing, um, for me at least. But I, I have those, you know, I have my go-to people. When, I mean, if you get back to 2011, uh, pretty much the only legislator that would put anything in for me was my buddy Joe Miller. And you know, I, I way overused him. Like, I think that year he put 12 bills in for me and none of them had a chance, but he did it anyway. Nice guy. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, there was a five bills, a series of five bills that was literally rewriting the entire tax code to put us in the top 10 without reducing the rates. And I had worked with the tax foundation in Washington, DC for six months on it between them and legislative council. And one of the five bills was so screwed up 
that legislative council, when they converted the recommendations to language, they accidentally imposed a sales tax on labor. And holy cow, did the you know what hit the fan when people found that in the bill and we were like, no, 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 that's not, that was not what was supposed to happen. We were not going to raise taxes here. This was supposed to lower taxes. It's like, Oh man. So, I mean, and, and part of the problem was that was like a 24 page bill, which is a fairly lengthy bill, right. uh, especially for a, a individual legislator to be proposing. Uh, usually those, the more lengthy bills are coming out of the interim committees and, and they've you know poured over everything. Uh, bills from an individual legislator very rarely exceed four pages, which is nice. And, you know, North Dakota's statutory code is is closer to real English than than most states. So it is fairly easy to write something that can be translated by legislative council. But you do have to have a legislator or five that are willing to uh, to be your mules, basically. That's great stuff. Thanks for that, Dustin. I want to open up some space yeah. for, for Richard or Norton um, to do some dreaming with us. What do you want to create? Um, so, Ellie, did you have something you were going to say really quick? I was just going to thank Dustin for that update that I was really excited to hear about um, the new direction with uh, Tom Kading. I didn't know that um, but things are moving in such a positive direction. Um, just didn't have an update. So very cool. Um, that's obviously what I want to hear. I want this to work out. So yay. Anyways, go ahead, Richard. Um, yeah. And I'll, I'll echo that. Um, I'll echo that because, you know, Ellie, if you recall, I had a sidebar conversation with you about that recently. Um, I, I was actually on the canvassing board in Cass County and it, you know, that, that issue specifically came up of, people who had, you know, a digital um, signature for their application for their ballot. And then, of course, they had, you know, their affidavit was their real signature, right? They'd sent it in. And, you know, when the first one came uh, during the canvassing board, everybody agreed pretty much there was not much pushback, but that that would prevail. You know, that that person's digital uh, signature would prevail there. And we would accept that. So, and it came up, um, you know, four or five more times throughout the, the, the canvassing, right? And so we had already set a precedent on the first one. How could we go back on the other obvious ones? Um, that was a very unique experience for me. Um, I also had to, and I'll just say the reason that it was unique is because um, I had to actually fill in a ballot that would have been completely opposite the way I would have voted. So I had to transfer someone's ballot to, to an actual countable ballot um, came on the Secretary of State website, right? And and it was legitimate. And and in order for it to be counted by the machine, it had to be put on that ballot. And it's the complete opposite how I would have invited. You know, so I had to do that ethically and from a, a point of doing my job. And and then I, I didn't even think about it. But then, of course, somebody rechecked the ballot and initialed off on it before it went to the counting machine, which made sense. But I didn't even think about that part. I was just going to do my job from a place of character and um, integrity, right? So I, I, I echo that for the, um, the initiatives on the digital signatures too. I mean, hell, you can buy a house in another state or home without ever going into a bank, all on digital signatures. Richard, did the person even vote yes on measure two? Um, no, they did not. 
Oh, okay. <laughs> it was very hard, Ellie. It was so hard beyond your wildest <laughs> fucking beliefs to sit down and transpose this back. Or not that, that would have been a bridge too far, huh? Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm out of here. I was like, wow, you know, I, 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 and I, but I did, I circled in everyone. I, I did miss one of the judges um, accident, but the, the person checking it for us, you know, cause it went through a, a process, then caught that and gave it back to me. And I circled that one in and then it went forward. Right. But no, Ellie, very good question. That makes me both laugh and cry at the same time. It was very difficult um, to do, but, I, I guess it, it was a good test of my, my character and integrity in that process. So I, I got to see how that process was in Cass County. And, you know, these, these folks, they take their job, you know, when you're working the polls and stuff like that, this, this, this was a legitimate election, you know, and I, I'm not going to go down that road, but, but I, I got to see that firsthand. Anyways, so um, what do I would like to see this group become? Um, I think that was your first question, Ryan, or, or this group go forward. Is, is that that was kind of the first question you had? Yeah. Um, and I, I, I'm 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 completely happy with and, and pleased and joyful that it's evolving. However, it's evolving um, from where I've come in and what I've been able to take part in, and you know, read the the, the great you know as, as as Jim said, he doesn't get to be here every Sunday, but he can read what happened, what the discussion was. You know, Ryan, you're always very faithful in that. Thank you. Um, um, so I, and I hope that we just continue to do what we're doing, some of the great work that we're doing. As far as possibilities for this next year and things that I'm working on for this next year, and just to kind of push back, Dustin, a little bit, um, one of the things that I have a real hard time with is when the NDHRC is identified as anyone's group, you know, Barry's group or Richard's group or or that kind of thing, because it is a... It is, a, it is a coalition that's very broad. And to speak to that, one of the things that has been done over the last couple of legislative sessions, and we're doing even larger this time, is the NDHRC has the coordinator. She will be, that individual is responsible to track human rights bills. Um, we're partnering with Planned Parenthood, so there are some bills there. We're also adding climate um, justice into that. So there are, you know, we're looking at the, those kinds of bills that, how, you know, how are um, um, those incentives, you know, given, you know, companies shouldn't, you know, I agree, I believe those incentives should go away. So we're kind of broadening in that way, even. Um, so I think, I think, I don't know that there's a specific targeted audience for the NDHRC other than those who are concerned about human and climate rights um, and, and, equ and, and equity there. Um, so a group, uh, when we have the, the committee, um, which includes our coordinator. And then what we do weekly is invite all of the coalition, like the Women's Network um, and others to this meeting to get an understanding of where bills are at, what's working, what's not, what's on the board, that kind of thing. And, and the board committee has to be stable. So my commitment to that has to be for the whole legislative session. Other organizations like Ellie, I've already presented this to her a little bit, and a more formal would go, will go out to the leadership of that network, um, Ellie, which it sounds like you are. And they can come and go as they need to into these weekly meetings, um, these weekly. So it's a legislative work group is what it is. And and um, so that's kind of happening there. So I'm perfectly happy to, you know, bring, you know, just kind of like teeter totter on that, I guess, or, you know, rosy round um, into it here as well, because. 
that that sounds like what you're doing. And if I'm not mistaken, Dustin, most bills that you follow will have to do with land rights, taxation. Um, um, help me out. Uh, it, taxes, uh, anything uh, related to government overreach. Um, corporate welfare is one of my biggest issues uh, yeah. opposing that you know if, if it were up to me there would be no incentives for anything mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and then everything would float on its own boat basically <laughs> you know and and i love the, that i got to meet you <laughs> i mean I, I, in this whole process you yeah and, and i believe those same things but in other things we're so opposite it's weird we're yeah. <laughs> well you know and, and and you know if you guys are are you know and i I use terms like you guys and your group shorthand, obviously, you know, it's just a colloquial thing. Um, and, you know, corporate welfare, I'm usually the only one there uh, mm. opposing these things. Like, you know, uh, for, you know, five sessions, I was always the only one testifying against expanding Renaissance zone uh, programs in cities. Now, of course, you know, I, I am now sitting on the Bismarck Renaissance Zone Authority and I vote, I've only voted against two projects and, and, you know, every, most of projects I give a yes vote, but I, I tell these guys, you know, I don't oppose, you know, an even handed uh, use of the authority. I don't think the authority should exist. So, you know, I'm not going to, you know, screw one person over as long as the program exists. I don't think it, it should be there at all. I, you know, I, so, um, you know, I, I tell these, these folks, you know, you don't have to worry about me making a stink on, on the committee because, you know, it, it needs to be run the way it needs to be run. But, you know, from my point of view, it shouldn't be there in the first place. And from a human rights perspective, this legislative session, um, and from a reproductive rights perspective, and Ellie, you kind of um, kind of um, timed out a little bit when you were saying what you whatever it is you were saying about you know with the women's network and women being on the always on the defense and the offense just because of the nature of being a woman. Um, yeah. And, yes, and I agree with that one hundred percent. You know, just by being born a woman, you are three times more likely to be violently, you know, violently attacked or hurt or, you know, targeted just because you're a woman in our society, right? Um, and and so I, and coming from the background that I come from, I recognize that. And, and so, but, but so reproductive rights. Um, and then we're, so we're expecting a lot of kind of like, I, I guess I don't know whether to call it anything other than hate legislation, because that's really what it is. Um, and, but, but reproductive rights there, it's expected that we're going to see a number of kind of interesting things. Maybe Dustin, I don't like the word stupid, but maybe to take your words, um, there, um, uh, you know, abortion bills, um, bills, transgender, like we saw in North Dakota during their last legislative session. I mean, it's expected that even though it failed on those test grounds, that some people are going to bring those to, to North Dakota as a continued test. Um, and so it's important to pay attention to those as well from a human rights perspective and a woman's rights perspective and a reproductive rights perspective. Um, so, yeah, so those are some things, I guess, uh, I don't want to take too much time talking. Um, I, I'm, I'm getting excited for the legislative session. I kind of wish that I could have been that um, legislative coordinator this round uh, for the NDHRC, but it, it just wouldn't sustain my life in the way I need it to. 
Um, but um, certainly Brandy has stepped up. Like I said, we had some great qualified applicants and she kind of rose to the top. Um, and so we're hoping that works out real well. And our legislative work group will start meeting next week as a matter of fact. So I've gotten some good things from here today about the calendar um, and bills because you know, we need to know specifically is someone working on the human rights bill, for instance, and those kinds of things. So, thank Richard, you, I, thank you for that, Richard. I, um, I would ask you to keep us in the loop for what that um, that legislative working group is is working on, and um, whether that's the, um, links to your meetings or recaps, or you know, um, touching base with certain people on certain topics as they come up. Um, we'll I, I be think tracking all those bills. You know, connecting that group, yep, connecting that group to what Dustin's trying to do to help um, people be more aware of what's working its way through the legislature is a great use of everyone's resources and a great way to kind of uh, create something greater than some of its parts. So I encourage you to keep us in breast, uh, in in mind um, and abreast of what you guys are working on, so we can help out as needed. And we'll also be asking, you know, on various other bills too. You know, like maybe even, um, you know, some of the tax and land. You know, Dustin, how does this impact, you know, the reservation, impact the reservations or how does this impact, you know, from that, 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 that equity justice, you know, as far as racial lands, right? Um, because I think that's one thing that's, you know, not focused. And maybe, you know, the legislature probably does believe there's not racism and that we don't have enough colored people here in this uh, state to worry about it, you know, or whatever the beliefs are. And like, like Ryan said, I don't care about what those beliefs are. We just need to build out those structures so they're fully inclusive. Yeah, um, Norton, I want to open up some space for you, quick too. Um, where do you put on your optimism hat <laughs> first of all, and then tell us <laughs> what are you looking to create in this next year? Well, I know I'm kind of the uh, the negative one in this whole uh, group, and I uh, don't that's, like that's to okay. Be, that's so appreciated I, too. That's we are, we're all, I, all perspectives are important. I, and as Ellie said, it's really hard for me to articulate what I want or need from this group or any group in this state because I'm so um, concerned as Jim is about the fact that we're you know, so down the road as a petrol state that we don't have any, we're a capitalist petrol state depending upon corporate welfare. So Dustin, you're, you're right on with that. I actually wrote a letter to the editor that they did not publish about the fact that socialism is frowned upon unless it's uh, corporate socialism, you know, so. Um, but it, it, there, there's so many things that frustrate me about I guess this whole thing that yes, I do come across as negative and I'd like to be more positive about everything. Uh, and I guess I use this venue and Ellie, that's why I'm kind of all over the board sometimes to kind of vent looking for what I want as some solutions. And I listen to you guys and, and I'm proud that you guys are as smart as you are and I just like it to be something that can build into a uh, much more cohesive uh, process to, to make these kind of changes. And uh, Dustin, you hit it on the head, corporate welfare is, is, is the worst possible thing because our legislators depend on it, 
Our farmers depend on it. Everyone in the state depends on corporate welfare and yet they hate socialism and socialism is taking care of people. Socialism is making sure that you have um, health insurance. There's, it, it, it drives me crazy. So that's why I use this venue to vent sometimes and I don't mean to, so. But I, I, I guess I'd like to listen and I'd like to see if there are some things that we can do to, to um, you know, move this needle just even a little bit. Well, thank you for that, uh, Norton. And uh, again, I think all perspectives are welcome and, and uh, diverse viewpoints are encouraged. Um, and I think this should be a, a safe place to come and vent a little bit. You know, sometimes I get very angry and I don't have any place to go. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just I do think there's a difference between venting and saying sentences that aren't factually correct. And so that's like where I take an issue. You know, it's not a shortcoming of this group that we didn't do X, Y and Z. There's only so many hours in a day and we did what we could with the people who are willing to show up. And so I think if someone is unpleased with the direction of the group or wishes more had been done, then that's, you know, that's. A really a moment of self-reflection, I think, where someone needs to say, oh, like there's labor to be done. Many hands make light work. Let me join the actual labor. And, and so, you know, I hear it a lot. A lot of people who aren't in the arena with me have a lot of opinions on what I do. And I'm saying, come join the arena, get into the arena um, and see what the work is really like and um, see the pace that things actually go, which is a snail's pace. And if you don't learn some patience with that, you'll just never get anywhere. Um, so it's really just a matter of factual accuracy, um, knowing that there's a lot of work that is happening, even if one doesn't see it, if one isn't keeping up with it. Um, there's always room for more contributions. I know like I'm always hungry for more hands to make light work and I'm very eager to collaborate. Um, but it's, it's, you know, difficult to hear that this, this group has shortcomings when I just don't know how we could have done anything more with the number of actual workers we had um, deployed, so to speak. So the more the merrier. Um, and with those diverse viewpoints, can, we can have a lot of power, um, can do a lot of great things. But um, I don't think it's a, an issue of viewpoint diversity to simply not have the facts straight about what this group has prioritized, what we haven't. Um, and just having a little bit more understanding that, you know, it's not really helpful to step in and tell people you wish they'd done something differently, but they were very busy doing something really important already. Um, and, you know, I do think that um, in retrospect, it does seem like measure two was probably going to fail regardless. Um, so, I think in terms of causation, what we did is we helped it fail harder and we helped generate a lot of community conversation. So now people are a little wiser to the shenanigans of the legislature and they're a little more fired up about their own power. Um, and I think that's great stuff. And it's a part of a bigger picture issue of activating our neighbors to be engaged in their own governance. And so, you know, it, it was never really about just measure two, you know, it was about uh, the bigger engagement of people and not letting them just fall asleep and get their power taken over. Um, so that's really the issue. Um, it, you know, 
let the venting be precise and, and not pointing fingers. Um, let the venting say that one feels like one should have done more and one wants to step up and do more. Um, that's kind of, that's my response to that situation. Um, I don't see it as a shortcoming of this group that we couldn't do more. I think it's a shortcoming of the fact that we couldn't get more hands to make light work. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And maybe that's part of the shortcomings is there. there's not enough of us. We're not strong. We're not, um, not all gods, uh, <laughs> for this little call. I, I find that in many things, I don't understand where people are. I mean, people will, you know, it's kind of frustrating, you know, and I agree with what, uh, what Ellie said there, the, 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 the broader perspective. So I, so two things there, I find it fascinating that in such a divided state where there is a, this superpower of power in the, in the one party, but the people, they're not going to give any more power. Right? I mean, they, 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 you know, they, they recognize that enough in that thankfully measure two, that's the reason it failed. Um, I heard someone say one time that if you look at our ballot initiatives, we're actually in the success of them. We're actually a purple state. I don't know if I agree with that, but could be. But that, that would be. I wrote that column. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I wrote, yeah, that was my Ellie. first column. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's cool. Hey, hey, no complaints. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> once said. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, um, yeah. Right, well, let's talk a little bit about. Um, I, I like how. Well, I mean, so. Ellie, I would push back a little bit, even, I guess, factual rant or uh, unfactual ranting, I think is helpful in a, in a, if you take it the right way, which is uh, not concentrated about the facts necessarily, but the more the, the unconscious, um, subconscious urge that's being expressed through these um, uh, interpretations that we don't believe to be factual. Because I think they're, they're, that um, part of what uh, the struggle is currently is the lack of imagination in politics. And so, um, if you if you identify a lack of imagination and then um, you're going to have also with the lack of imagination a lack of ability to articulate what you believe the vision should be and so a lot of what I would consider non-factual complaining in in um, politics um, is the the uh, attempt to express an urge they can't articulate and so they're they're, they're what the best they can do is have this venting of of non-factual whatever. Um, but I think there's value in that if you can identify what that urge is, what's that unconscious urge, which kind of goes back well, to that. Well, sure, but in a retrospective of the civic co-op's successes and failures, it doesn't seem like the time to start listing failures. I mean, if the failures are outside of the civic co-op, then let's just say that. I mean, the civic co-op is kind of like the only place where we're actually making traction on these issues. So I, I just find it kind of the, I find it kind of ironic that, that in a reflection upon what, what the civic cooperators didn't do right, we're going over the things that we're the only ones doing it. I mean, it's, it's just, it doesn't, it, that's what I mean by not according with reality or fact. And right, so well, I think, I think it just, yeah, go ahead. No, I, I just take that to mean though, you know, how do we motivate people? How do we um, um, defeat apathy? How do we defeat um, a passiveness that pervades the, uh, the culture and a mediocrity that pervades the culture, um, our, our consumerist capitalist society? Uh, how, how do we counter, counteract that? You know, I think that's the urge, that's what's being identified is like, ah, oh, why are we the only ones here? 
Um, and, 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 you know, that is, um, there's only four, five of us now. And um, we started with uh, 13, 14, 15, maybe. I don't remember the first crew. Um, so it's disappointing in that um, sense. And I guess if I was a traditional leader of this non, this leaderless group, I would, I would take it upon myself to, to take responsibility for that. Um, because we don't we need more people to do more things. And the less people we have, the less things we can do. So there is a sadness. I get, you can recognize the sadness and not being able to do as much as we have. We have more ideas than we have uh, labor to, to execute those ideas. So it's, I think it's important to recognize that because that is um, a, a difficulty. Uh, um, you know, whether we can say it's uh, because we're a, a new group and um, it's, um, you know, we haven't met. Um, uh, the right timing, uh, you know, maybe that's it. Maybe it's other structural things. Who knows? Um, but I think it's it's a valid. Um, it's a feeling, you know. And sometimes feelings aren't based in facts. It's just the, the thing you're feeling right now. Um, and I want to give, you know, I want to give some space for some non-rational discussion sometimes, <laughs> uh, because I think it's it's useful. Um, but with that, I, I'll, I'll, I'll shift a little bit. I, I do have a little bit more to say on it. how do we motivate people? Because I I, I, um, I got one prompt left for you guys, kind of closing, but. Um, as far as what I'm working, what I'm excited about working on for 2021, I, I want to put it out there that I'm willing to testify on anyone's on any any um, bill or law's behalf that I'm um, that I believe in or at least would agree with, or I'm not opposed to. If I'm ambivalent, I'll I'll, uh, I'll I'll testify too in my to my ambivalence. But um, um, just to put it out there, if you guys are looking for people to testify, uh, I think I will be willing to. I can write my own testimony for the most part and show up and, and do my thing and be. Um, and be succinct and short, not to be crazy. Um, so yeah, I'll put, if anyone needs any, any testimony or would like more people to show up to this or that, please let me know, please reach out. Um, um, due to our, our Zoom ability to, to this session, I'm excited to, to uh, show up and say things. Um, beyond that, just kind of putting myself out there for, for helping anyone's cause that um, I tangentially believe in. Um, I want, there's a couple, two things that are, are more, I guess, um, our bigger bigger ideas that I'll be working on in 2021. Um, one of them I was already working on this last year, um, kind of a little bit behind the eight ball, and uh, and then COVID happened and it stopped. But it is a ballot um, initiative for a constitutional amendment for universal basic income. I believe I've shared with uh, most of you the text of that. Um, so I will still be moving that forward with the hope, desire to have it uh, submitted by June 6th or something of 2021 so I can get um, a full year to um, peddle my wares, <laughs> peddle my, my, my ballot initiative. Um, so that's, I guess, the, a long-term structural um, change I'd like to see made. I think it, it does address a lot of the things we are talking about um, in terms of removing some of the, um, some of the desire to uh, exploit ourselves from the system and, and be able to instead promote flourishing, the flourishing of humanity. Um, I think we have a, a system right now that we have more than enough uh, things and more than enough abundance for all of us to be very, very well off. Um, but for whatever reason, we've decided to implement a system where some of us um, don't get to be as well off as others. And um, and we've created the system where we make ourselves feel bad about that fact. And um, we look down upon people that uh, don't have as much as we do. And we assume it's because they don't work as hard or they're not as uh, smart or they're lazy or some other crap. And uh, no, it's just the system is, is, is created um, these circumstances for a certain percentage of people and that's just endemic to the system. And so um, I think um, 
if capitalism will survive, it'll be with some sort of universal basic income as a way to counteract some of the, the poor um, outcomes of capitalism. And so that's what I'm pursuing here on the state level. And then from a more philosophical level, I'm uh, pursuing a, a, an anarchist-inspired think tank. Um, and it goes back to, so um, I guess, first of all, I guess when you think of anarchism, you think of like uh, people throwing Molotov cocktails against uh, Target or something. Um, but it's not that, it's, it's a little cooler than that. Um, to, to my, the way I read anarchism is, is um, kind of the pure version of democracy. So back in the day before um, America started, um, anarchy and, and democracy were used kind of interchangeably as terms of derision. Um, just like you didn't want to give in to the, the mob of democracy, you didn't want to give in to the mob of, the mob of anarchists because they didn't, you know, they're were uh, thought to believe in nothing, you know, it's subject to the whims and passions of um, regular people who um, haven't been educated and don't know anything. And so there was a, always a fear of democracy and a fear of anarchism because um, they had no writing authority or no common belief system. And um, at some point democracy became okay. We tried to implement it a little bit in our Republican um, country uh, of America. And um, eventually, democracy became something that we we, we strive for. And I think this group, um, this group is is really trying to revive some of the democratic forms and democratic um, ideals, especially as they pertain to direct democracy. And, and uh, you know, one of the things I'm most proud of is that we we've been able to have those discussions and try to um, make structural tweaks to allow for democracy to actually be implemented on a, a more wide ranging um, plane than. Uh, you know, the other impulse in, in American politics right now, which was just an anti-democratic impulse. And so I think that in, in some ways to be on the defense and the offense uh, for democracy is a huge um, part of what we're doing here. And so with the anarchist think tank, um, I want to get out the this idea that, you know, democracy is great um, in some respects, but in other respects, it's not, not as great. Uh, sometimes, you know, it creates... Um, a um, something like uh, def defeating measure two. And then sometimes democracy um, lynches somebody or, you know, you go on social media and uh, the democracy of the mob trashes someone for saying something stupid on, on social media. Uh, so democracy is good and bad. It's kind of an amoral system. And a lot of our, our processes um, uh, that we engage in on a societal level are amoral. Um, and I think what happened when we lost um, a common God and a common tradition um, is that we lost all of the ends and we just replaced them with means. So we have the scientific method, we have capitalism, democracy. These are all amoral systems that can have good, good outcomes or bad outcomes um, depending on the situation. And so what draws me to anarchism as defined by me is uh, I think it's the only inherently moral process in existence that we've come up with. And it's moral in the sense that it, it has a consensus process. So, you know, democracy is about the majority rules. So if 51 to 49, the people, the 51 people um, decide something and the 49 people, other people that didn't like it can, you know, fuck off. Uh, you know, there's no, there's no recourse until the next election. And so while it's good to express the will of the people in certain respects, um, for the people in the minority in those decisions, there's no recourse, there's no um, validation of their perspective. And uh, especially living in this state, as we do as kind of the minority party uh, politically, I think we can respect the idea that um, 
it would be nice if our perspectives were given more weight, more respect, more um, public air, uh, so we could discuss it with, uh, in good faith, our ideas and, and have them taken um, reasonably and respectably, um, but they aren't. And so what happens in anarchist consensus process is that it's not majoritarian rule. It's um, a system, a very inefficient and long-winded system where everyone eventually agrees to something. That's the consensus. It's a unanimous consensus process. So there's a multiple um, compromises and changes and long ass meetings. But what happens at the end is that we came to an an agreement that everyone can believe in and everyone um, is okay with. And uh, it would seem to me that that's what we need right now. We we have no common God. We have no common anything. Uh, So we need a, a, um, a, a process, a means that is somewhat moral. And I think anarchism consensus process is that one thing that is a moral a way to make decisions. And, um, you know, I, I would say that we, we all have, uh, we all are kind of anarchists in our own way. You know, we're anarchists when we, um, when we solve problems uh, without calling the police or getting a lawyer. You know, if I back into uh, someone's car and um, be like, okay, well, I, I screwed up and uh, you hurt your car. Um, and uh, now I'll pay for it. Just tell me what it is and I'll pay for it. You know, I'm not going to get my insurance company. I'm not going to call the, you know, have you call the cops so we can get out a, you know, an accident report. We're just going to handle it between two people and we don't need to uh, have the authority come in and tell us what's right and wrong. We can figure it out ourselves. And that's anarchism. It's just solving problems between people. And, uh, and we can do this. We can do this about masks. We can do it about this or that. We just don't do it enough because we let these structures and bureaucracies d- determine how we settle uh, disagreements. It doesn't have to be that way. And uh, I think this group, particularly in the way we've collaborated, has shown that, you know, we're, we're all already communists when we're working on, on a common project. You know, there's not someone telling everyone to be like, you got to do this and you got to do the other thing and you, you got to clean up after everybody. Um, we all just kind of took on what we were good at. And, 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 you know, and we work together in a very um, common way <laughs> as communists, um, just because when we have a common problem to solve, that's what people do. If, if a tornado comes and everything gets broken, then the, the community comes up and the people that can build houses, build houses, the people that can uh, fix a, a car, fix cars, and they, the problem gets solved. So we, we have all of this great um, knowledge as people, as human animals, and, um, Sometimes we let the structures tell us what we can do, but in fact, we know what we can do between people. We just forget about it sometimes. So what I'm trying to do with the anarchist think tank is to bring these ideas back up, have, have a consensus protocol where we can actually solve very complicated problems where, and come up to an agreement where everyone um, is happy with what happened. And, um, and we actually show people they have the power within themselves to solve their own problems if they can only talk to people and they can only sit in a long ass meeting uh, and, and really listen to people, listen to, to where they're coming from and um, figure out, well, what can we do here where everyone is going to be happy? And it's just a matter of putting the time in and work in, in my opinion. And with that, um, I want to switch it back to, to democracy one more time as, at, at the end here. Um, because I was listening to NPR and they had, a, um, they had the uh, editor for the, the paper in Williston, they had the editor for the paper in Grand Forks and Fargo, and they're talking with the two NPR, the Prairie Public um, host guys. And uh, they're talking about the pand- pandemic and wearing masks and the, and the mask mandate. And the, uh, the editor from the Williston paper said, 
you know, there's a certain percentage of people that will just do what they're told. And so even though there's no teeth to this mandate, um, the fact that the government said it, the government governor said it, and the government is telling us to do it, uh, you're gonna have 30, 40% people are just gonna start doing it. And uh, and everyone else on the on the panel was like, uh-huh, yep, yep, that's how people are. And, uh, and I think we would agree that people do like to be told what to do. But my, my prompt in closing is that um, given that people do like to be told what to do, <laughs> how do we, um, uh, how do we include them in democracy then? Because uh, in democracy, they're supposed to tell us what they want to do. And then if we each tell each other what we want to do, then we come to some conclusion that, you know, at least 51% of us support. But if people, you know, if there's people that are just uh, fascist adjacent and all it takes is someone telling them what to do and they'll start doing it, then uh, uh, <laughs> how do they work with democracy? What do we do with those people? Um, can we do anything? Is, is there a way to encourage people that like to be told what to do to actually think for themselves in a de democratic fashion? Thoughts? People are going to think for themselves on their own. You can't force them to do anything like that. <laughs> okay, you can't force them, but can you can you encourage them in a non-direct way to think for themselves? I mean, we can change what the norm is, and I think norms are very, very powerful. And so um, if not paying attention is normative, people won't pay attention. If paying attention is a little more normative, we can wake a few people up. We have to be realistic about what we can achieve um, and realistic about the timeline. But I think, um, you know, we made it normative for people to wake up to measure two's funny business. And um, I don't know about you guys, but I definitely saw evidence that there were people who were like, Hmm, I didn't realize this was, a, this was as much of a threat until I heard you guys explain it. Um, and so I think that we lead by example. I think we lead by trying to reach people where they're at and just continue the outreach efforts. I, I think um, humans are the way they are, and we live in a system that's very slow to change. So there's not a lot of good, I, personally, in my opinion, um, I don't think there's a lot of good in wasting time um, wanting something that we're not going to get to work with. And just, I would rather just jump right into working with people where they're at and continually engaging them. I, I like the idea of, of changing the norm, um, Ellie. But so the norm is inside your own head. How do you, how do you... <laughs> How do you provide an example? Of, uh, what, what is an example of thinking that someone can be like, oh, well, that's thinking. Now that I know I've seen someone do it, um, I would too like to think um, for myself. I, I, I agree with you that both Dustin and Ellie, I think you're saying the same thing, but I'm, how do we, what's an example of democracy or um, participation in democracy that we, can show this uh, that would encourage, excite people to, to participate in democracy. I think part of my criticism with the way democracy is sold to us is um, the get out the vote effort, which only happens around elections and then it goes away after elections, which makes sense if you want people to vote in elections. But I'd say voting in an election is like the least amount you can do. It's like the, the bare minimum. It's like, uh, uh, <laughs> 
just breathing. Uh, but there's so much more you can do in democracy. So we've made democracy into just get out the vote efforts, which I think is kind of creates creates the apathy because uh, it says, well, here's democracy, go participate in it. But um, it's only once every two years that you get to participate in democracy. Um, but isn't it democracy every day? Isn't it uh, democracy day every day? Um, how do we how do we get people to you know activate our? You you said um, Elliot. How do we activate our neighbors? I don't know. They're in their house, and I'm in my house. I, I'm I I, I want to hear more brainstorming on this because I I don't know how to make people think for themselves. Well, and that I think. Um, you know, that kind of being a critical thinker, encouraging people to be critical thinkers. And, you know, we, we, we go back to this, not trying to understand, you know, why people think they want to think or, or you know, you know, it, a lot of it comes down to, especially in this state, I think, is how people have been enculturated over time, generations. And, um, you know, in that kind of mentality of, you know, no one's going to tell me what to do, you know, well, from the beginning, I started wearing a mask, not because somebody was telling me what to do, but because I have a basic understanding of science and I, I'm willing to listen and hear. So, you know, the, the, you know, how do we motivate people, I guess, to, to be critical? If they're not open to hearing, you know, then, you know, that, that's the unfortunate part because then, you know, in regard to the masks and that kind of thing, it, it, I kind of want to like be an I told you so, you know? Like, you know, from the get-go, I, I was wearing a mask from the early days, and there were people within my organization who didn't believe that that was necessary, and we were getting them for staff, and I had the church make a bunch of cu- bunch for us and stuff like that, and then, you know, as the weeks went on, it just became increasingly worse, and then it seemed to get better, and and I had said even at that time, this is not the end of this. Um, I'm more concerned about the second wave. Um, you know, the, of this coming, you know, whenever it's going to come. And, you know, so I, I, I'm so, that's where I get my frustration from. So, and it kind of loops back to what I, I didn't quite finish later is for people to have that civic engagement, Ryan, there, that in lies the question, even outside of the democracy of getting out the vote, that, that, the, that is the part that is perplexing to me is that there maybe are just a great number of people who just want to be, living their lives and don't want to worry about the day-to-day of it and just believe that, you know, the people that they put in power are going to do the right thing, which we know isn't always the case. Um, So how do we break out of that norm in North Dakota? Because I I see that, I see that in the state and it's, it's frustrating. It's, It's frustrating. North Dakota, just like most, 71 million people voted for Donald Trump because of their pocketbook. They all looked at the, he's failed on all of these other aspects of his administration. But what he's been given credit for is getting out of the way with regulations, lowering taxes for the wealthy corporates, making sure that the stock market start keeps going up and up and up. So what we have not as North Dakota, but as a country, we are so deeply entrenched in capitalism that we cannot look at our civic duty. We can't look at the things that um, are important to our neighbors, to our friends, 
And as Ryan said, you know, there's no church anymore as far as the church is basically another political organization. And what we need is a community again of people that care about each other and want to be a community. But when you talk like that, you're branded a communist or a socialist or a, you know, a fascist or a anarchist. I mean, they, they'll throw any label on you as long as you don't think about the fact that capitalism is a basic flaw in our system. It is our system. <laughs> that's, what, that's what I mean. <laughs> it's not a flaw in our system. It is the system. So, so I think that from your, your critical thinking standpoint, you know, you, you're looking at people who are anti-mask as not having critical thinking, whereas the people who are anti-mask believe that they are the ones who are the critical thinkers. <laughs> so in, in essence, to me, the anarchist position is to be anti-mask. So, you know, you know, if the government's telling you to wear a mask and you're an anarchist, you don't wear a mask. Well, yeah, right? anar anarchism <laughs> is if the government was telling me to not to wear it, I probably would be wearing it. Right. Well, I, 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 <laughs> that's what I said before Bergam ever did anything. we've been told by the government not to wear it, too. I mean, there are, you know, you know in the yeah. beginning, we were told, don't wear the mask, don't worry about it. This whole mask deal, you know. Well, yeah. Dustin, I, I guess... My version of a small a anarchism is that there authority isn't um, always bad if it's justified authority. So if I go to an expert about nuclear fusion to build my nuclear bomb, I'm going to give him, you know, the authority he deserves as the nuclear expert. I'm not going to tell him what to do because I'm an anarchist. You know, I, I know that he has the authority. So I think it's okay to have um, authority um, granted in certain cases when it's justified. So if you look at societies that were, you know, indigenous societies that were basically anarchist, they had a chief. And at some point when they needed to go to war, the chief told them what to do during the part of the uh, day that they were at war. But then when the war stopped or the, you know, the battle stopped, then everyone went back to having no really um, uh, hierarchical system. So there were there were pockets of authority granted as as it was justified by the circumstances, and I think um, that kind of a benevolent monarchy though. Well, no, it's 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 it's, it's <laughs> similar to communism. It's similar to communism. So you know when if you're uh, in a disaster area and someone's really good at something, you know if they're good at um, you know, if they're good at disaster management or if they've been, you know, if they have a certain skill set, you're going to elect them to do that, to lead that effort in your rebuilding effort because not because uh, they're the authority, but because they they have that skill, you know, that they're going to take that role on. Um, and you wouldn't expect um, us to share it equally because that wouldn't get the job done as fast. And it's an emergency situation. So I, I think the thing that happens in a state is that we grant authority um, on a perpetual basis based on no justifications, um, or you know, only based on initial justifications. So the revolutionary spirit occurs, we've got this great idea for a country, America happens, we've granted the government this authority, and then 300 years passed, and it's just been, you know, um, never, uh, <laughs> not necessarily justified throughout those 300 years. And so what, can we have a process where we're continually uh, reassessing the justifications of the authorities that we've granted to people? And this is, a, this is an argument that the small government libertarian people make about the social contract. 
which is I didn't sign a contract. <laughs> when do we get to when do we get to renew the lease? <laughs> well, I think bringing it back, you know, bringing it back up for discussion is a good is a good um, exercise because people people on both sides of that um, question are are not thinking about it, and so certain things get taken for granted. And you forget about things. And that's what happens. You know, that's that's our complaint with people that don't give a fuck about um, what's happening in government or in politics is that uh, they're asleep at the wheel. And, uh, you know, they, they there's authority in their life they don't even recognize. And, and it's not justified, but they're not awake enough to even understand that. Um, so if we had a process. And, hey, I, I'd like to also just say that, you know, it's something black folks say, too like uh, activists involved with Black Lives Matter, they say, we didn't sign this contract. This contract sucks. And, right. and so there's a, lot of, there's a lot of like threads of that question. Um, one thing I wanted to suggest you guys kind of uh, do as a mental experiment is, and it's a little out there, but bear with me. Think about paleo humans. Like literally we are not, in terms of neural architecture, we're not different from humans who lived, who didn't have any kingdoms. There were no nations. I mean, we, we are so biologically and behaviorally similar to these prehistoric humans who lived a certain way. They lived in small groups. Yeah. Um, when, yes, 150 yeah. is like the, that magic number. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. we really are cognitively equipped to live in groups of 150. So I, re I just the other day, I was talking to my husband about who are authoritarians? What is their deal? Why do we even have them? And we have them because they were useful in the context of human evolution. You know, we had to have our change seekers, our novelty seekers, our experimenters. Um, we also, you know, who they wanted to try different things and help help groups thrive with new ideas. And and there were people who wanted to talk to that other group of humans over there that we were a little scared of, maybe wanted to try talking to them. And then there are people who were like, hey, we got to protect our group. Fuck those guys, you know, and like that was actually useful. It was good to have some people who are vigilant and untrusting of outsiders because it kept the group from being naive and, and led to slaughter all the time. So human groups evolved a certain way. And here we are with these gigantic nation states. We were just never cognitively designed for the situation we're in. And so if it feels weird that a hell of a lot of people are voting for Trump, it's because, yeah, like the 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 consolidation of power and the way democracy so-called functions and these gigantic structures, it's just so far afield from what we evolved to navigate socially, intellectually, emotionally, politically. So remembering to meet people where they're at includes remembering that we're all these like we're this we're just complicated apes who used to only hang out with 150 people. And we're just not doing a great job of navigating the structures that we're part of, and I, we should think of ourselves as part of, you know, multi-millennia trajectory for humans where we got, where suddenly kingdoms came into existence and feudalism and like all this stuff, like we're still working through whatever this strange human historical bubble is. And we're still learning how to find our place with so much gigantic structural hierarchy that just used to not exist when we were evolving, um, in in the ways that make us who we are. I, I I so you know I've been doing some just some recent a little bit of recent reading. I, 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 I it's a book I'm going to order. I think um, I can't even remember the author uh, right now. But yeah, he 
he, I think it's co-authored. So it's a, they, they speak of that exact same that you're talking about, Ellie, that we are not, we were not, we are, our civilization has evolved faster than we, we have basically. And our ability to socialize ourselves in it and, and properly, you know, adapt. Um, and that's where we see some of the challenges for democracy. It, it, it sounds like a really good book. I'll have to look at it a little bit more, maybe order it and, and um, share it with the group if I think it's something that's interesting. But I, I, I find that fascinating that you're like talking about that because that is just so, and then I remember back to um, anthropology classes that I had um, and, and that kind of thing too. And it just, that resonates with me. We, we really, we have a, and I think that's why so many people then just disengage after a while. They just, you know, they kind of like, come to this point that I can't handle all of that, that I just need to live my day to day. And I, you know, I don't know how to process the rest of that. So I'm just going to let the people that we put in office hash it all out and however it works, it works. Yeah, I agree. Uh, and I, I, that kind of what draws me to anarchism is I think we're, we're all anarchists underneath it all um, based on these kind of evolutionary factors of, of where we um, evolved to, to operate best in. And um, what the structures do is they alienate people from them. And uh, you don't feel like you have a role within the system. So you disengage. And uh, you know that's part of, part of the, the insidious, insidiousness of, of capitalism is that uh, it's ultimately alienating you to, to, to sell you more things and, uh, and to comfort you <laughs> in your alienation. And it's, it does a great job at that. And uh, who doesn't love Amazon uh, sending you things whenever you want things sent to you. But what it does is it gives you all these incentives to not participate and so to be alienated and to, to kind of re-engage your, your alienation. And, um, and I think that's kind of a fundamental of, of all um, structures that are perpetual structures. And so this, this idea of ha um, having a mechanism to renew the authorities we've given, whether to government or to religion or to our, our boss at work, um, I, if there was a mechanism to like have a review, you're you're in review of of, of authority, you know, to say like, have you have you met your obligations, Mr. Authority, here, and uh, you know, do you are the situation did the situation change that we the authority we granted you is no longer needed, you know, things change. We our, our structures should not persist beyond the lifespan of a human, but they have, and. Um, and so if, unless there's a mechanism to continue to refresh the structures, I think they're, they're by nature going to alienate people. They're going to cause disengagement and um, they're going to go against our nature. I have, I've, I've really enjoyed our time together today. Um, I have to uh, depart now. Um, I have something else that I have to move into in a year in about 45 minutes. Um, again, I, I really just appreciate the dialogue, uh, the work that everyone does, the collaboration. Um, I, I think this, you know, what, uh, what this evo has evolved into is, you know, very interesting. And I, I hope that we continue, even if it, you know, now just remains the folks that are in the room um, and maybe, you know, invite other people. And I, I hope that there are some folks who maybe, you know, for whatever reason, if they're licking their wounds or, you know, um, whatever reason that they're not uh, participating, that they might reconsider that and maybe a re-invite. I don't know what that looks like. 
but I, I wish you all a good week and continued safety and good health. Thank you, Richard. And, and uh, I reiterate that to the rest of the room. I think it is a good um, natural stopping point unless anyone else has anything they'd like to add before we complete. Thanks everyone, take care. Thanks Norton. See you later. See you guys. Bye.